Okay, Matthew 21. Matthew's account of Palm Sunday. Let's pray. Father, we lift up this time in your word as we look at this very special event that happened some 2,000 years ago, a little over that. Lord, we ask you to speak to our hearts today. Bring this uh, moment in history alive in our hearts and minds today. And may we truly celebrate the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ into our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to pick it up where they're drawing near to Jerusalem here in verse 1. They had come down from Galilee uh, with this specific destination in mind as Jesus, back in Matthew 20, verses 17 through 19, Jesus gave his disciples multiple warnings, but they didn't really want to hear it. And part of the reason that it bothered them so much is because they really weren't paying close attention. Verse 17, now Jesus going up to Jerusalem, the reason they go up, even if you look at a map, Galilee's north of Jerusalem, but Jerusalem's higher in altitude. So even though they're going down on a map, they're going up in elevation. My wife and I were in Jerusalem several years ago when they had an unusually large snowstorm. Quite interesting. Not as high as Albuquerque, but somewhere right around 3,000 feet or so in Jerusalem, give or take a few feet. So he took the 12 disciples aside on the road. So they're on their way down from Galilee or way up to Jerusalem. And he takes them aside and he says, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be betrayed by the, to the chief priests and to the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify. And here's the part that they apparently weren't paying enough attention to. And the third day he will rise again. Oh, praise God, it's all going to be okay. But the moment they started to hear Jesus speaking about his impending death, I think they kind of tuned out. They didn't, I don't want to hear that. So Jesus set out to Jerusalem with the twelve, knowing that his destiny was to die there for the sins of the world. So, you know, there have been some, there's so many ridiculous theories and uh, Beliefs put forth about the life of Christ, his crucifixion, his death, his resurrection. And there are those who say Jesus was just a poor victim of circumstances. Wrong place at the wrong time, boy. No, he knew exactly where he was going. He knew what was going to happen. And he very deliberately and purposefully went there because he willingly laid down his life for us. The Bible says no man can take it from him. He said it himself, no man can take it from me, I lay it down of my own accord. So they came to Bethphage, which means house of the unripe fig. It's a village on the Mount of Olives on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, about 14.5 miles from Jericho down to Jerusalem. Bethphage is between the two, very close to Bethany, the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And it was a Sabbath day's journey from Jerusalem, 2,000 cubits or just under a half a mile. So at this, when they arrived there, they're within striking distance, so to speak, of Jerusalem. They're on the Mount of Olives. This was on the, Bethphage is on the eastern slope. In a moment, Jesus will come down the western slope from the east into Jerusalem. 
And so he sent two disciples to go into the village and find a donkey for him. None of the Gospels tell us who these men were. Peter, James, and John were kind of like the inner circle, those who were closest to Jesus. Maybe a couple of the other guys were sent. We don't know. But he says, go into the village opposite you. Now, that would have been Bethany, where Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived. The village opposite Bethphage was Bethany. Immediately, you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. And so we see again, just as Jesus had just previously prophesied his own death and resurrection, we see the deity of Christ shining through. He knew then and now knows all things. He said, you're going to find a donkey. How does he know that? Because he's God. He's the Son of God. And so, verse 3, If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. Now notice that Jesus is uh, speaking of himself being in need of this donkey. And so Jesus refers to himself as the Lord. And again, when we talk about people who have their own ideas about Jesus apart from the truth of God's word. They'll say, oh, Jesus never claimed to be God. That's just something you Christians made up. No, no, Jesus made many claims to being God. And this is one of them where he deliberately refers to himself as the Lord. Tell them the Lord has need of them and immediately he will send them. And Matthew tells us in verse 4, all this was done that it might be fulfilled what was spoken of by the prophet. And if you remember back from our studies in Matthew, one of the big emphasis in the Gospel of Matthew is that Matthew well, was written primarily to Jewish people, although it certainly has benefit for everyone. But Matthew was kind of targeting the Jews. And a major emphasis in his Gospel is that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament messianic prophecies. So over and over again in the Gospel of Matthew, we see this phrase, uh, that which was spoken by the prophet or as it is written, these types of things. If you go back to Matthew 1, 22 through uh, 23, all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet saying, behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Here, Matthew is referring to Isaiah 7.14. So a big emphasis in the Gospel of Matthew that everything about the life of Christ was in fulfillment of these Old Testament messianic prophecies. And so even this scenario with the donkey is from Zechariah 7.9. Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Zechariah 9.9. And as you've heard me mention before, in times of war, and by the way, this is what the Jews were expecting. If Jesus was really the Messiah, then he was going to start a war with Rome, and he was going to reclaim the throne of David and kick the Romans out of the land of Israel. But in times of war, kings rode horses. Makes a lot of sense. Good, strong battle steed. But in times of peace, they would ride on a donkey. They'd just come cruising through the town on a donkey. Peace, everybody. Now, another interesting thing about Matthew's account, he's the only one who mentions 
the two animals, the colt and the mother. So the disciples went out and did as Jesus commanded them. You got to wonder what was going through the mind of these guys. What the heck does Jesus want with a donkey? But regardless, notice something. They were quick to obey him, and we should follow their example. Do you ever find yourself wondering, why is God doing this in my life? Why is he telling me that? You ever wonder? But Matthew eleven four through 6, they went on their way, found the colt tied by the door outside on the street, and they loosed it. But some of those who stood there said to them, what are you doing loosing the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus commanded, so they let them go. Now, again, keep in mind, Jesus and his disciples had spent a fair amount of time in this area around Bethphage and Bethany, home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. It was a frequent stop-off point for them as they were traveling back and forth between the Galilee and Jerusalem. That was and still is the most desirable route going north to south. And so it's quite possible that the owner of these donkeys was perhaps himself an admirer or follower of Jesus. And so when they said the Lord has need of him, quite possible he immediately knew who they were talking about and he quickly agreed to let them use the animals. So they brought the donkey and the colt, verse 7, laid their clothes on them and set him on them. So in place of a saddle or a blanket, uh, the disciples took some of their outer garments, laid it across the donkey there, and set him on them, it says. But, of course, he couldn't ride both simultaneously. And as we read in Zechariah 9, 9, Mark 11, Luke 19, Jesus apparently rode the colt with the mother donkey, most likely in front, leading the way. So that's how we reconcile the idea of Matthew mentioning two beasts, whereas your other Gospels only mention the one. Verse 8, A very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Now remember, when we read about this great multitude, this is the uh, Sunday before Passover. Five days before Passover. The normal population of Jerusalem at the time of Christ, we believe, was about 40,000 people. But at Passover... Because remember, this is one of the feasts where all the Jews were required to come back to Jerusalem no matter where they lived. And so your truly devout Jews would make that journey. So Jerusalem would swell from 40,000 to approximately 250,000 people. Can you imagine? So when it says a very great multitude, it was packed out. John 12, 12, the next day a great multitude that had come to the feast of Passover and unleavened bread. When they had heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they came over to view him there on the road. And the, one of the big reasons for that is that he, he had just recently raised Lazarus from the dead and that created a, a massive revival in his popularity. When you read in the Gospels, Towards the end of Jesus' ministry, it tells us many people began to turn away from him because his teachings became more and more intense the closer and closer it got to his crucifixion. And he was really challenging people to become serious disciples. 
And one of the hard teachings that turned people away was this idea of eating his body, drinking his blood. They took it literally, not understanding that he was talking about his sacrifice on the cross. And they said, this is too much, I'm out of here. And then Jesus said to the disciples, so you guys are going to turn away too? And once again, I mean, Peter is famous for some of his blunders, but he's also famous for some of his profound statements. And Peter says, where else would we go? You have the words of life. Isn't that powerful? And it's so true. Where else could we go? Jesus has the words of life. So they spread their clothes on the road as a way of paying homage to Jesus. You know, remember in days of old, the knight would throw his cloak across the mud puddle so that the fair damsel could step across without getting muddy? Well, they were throwing their clothes on the road as a way of paying homage to Christ. And they were also, they cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And so another way of honoring him, and this is where we get the Palm Sunday designation from, is they were using palm branches, John 12, 13. When they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, verse 12, they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Some of the symbolism behind the palm branches, of course, they symbolized fruitfulness because in the Middle East, these palm trees would bear dates, which was a very valuable commodity. And they also symbolized victory. When the king would come home from war, they would greet him in the streets when he came home victorious, waving palm branches. And so, again, the people were right and wrong at the same time. They thought that Jesus was coming as a conquering king to drive out the Romans and reestablish the glorious Israelite king of David. So when they called out to him as the king of Israel, they were right, but for the wrong reason. Verse 9, the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And here the people are reciting from a passage in Psalms called the Hallel. And it consists of six Psalms, Psalms 113 through 118. Might want to go read it when you get home today. They are recited as a unit from 13 to 118 on joyous occasions. These occasions included the following, the three pilgrim festivals, Passover, Shavuot, and Sukkot, uh, the major Jewish holidays mentioned in the Torah, as well as Hanukkah and Rosh Kodesh, which is the beginnings of the new month. So they would always recite the Hallel, Psalms 113 through 118 on these occasions. Hosanna to the son of David, as you probably know, Hosanna means, oh, save or save now. But again, they weren't calling out for the salvation of their souls. They were calling out for salvation, deliverance from the Roman oppression that they were under. Psalms 118, 25 and 26. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. So you could say that the people were looking for a soldier savior, but Jesus came to be a sinner's savior. Matthew 1, 21, she will bring forth a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And of course, Jesus' name, Yeshua, in the Hebrew means God is our salvation. What a perfect fit. Hosanna, save now. 
God, you are our salvation. But the Jews of Jesus' day were no different than any other people of any other time. They thought they needed to be delivered from their circumstances. How many people do you know like that? Maybe you've been in that place yourself. You think that your real problem originates from outside yourself, apart from yourself. In this case, for them, they perceived their number one problem to be Roman oppression. But, you know, I've observed this over the years, that people will say, well, if I could just get out of Albuquerque. That's my problem. This town. This one-horse, podunk town. And in fact, somebody was just telling us how that's, that's a problem in our city that uh, uh, many of the young people, as they grow up, they might stay here long enough to get their college degree or whatever, or, but ultimately the goal of many young people growing up in Albuquerque is to look for greener pastures, and sometimes older people as well. Or, if I could just get out of my marriage, because he or she is the problem. Or if I could just find someone to marry, that's the problem. I don't have a spouse or a mate. I can't tell you the number of times, folks, <laughs> where I've seen somebody who is single, whether they be old or young, and God begins to, do, begins to do a really amazing work in their life. They are just growing in the Lord, getting strong, getting excited, having a heart for God and a hunger to serve Him, to be in ministry, and then they meet somebody. And that somebody oftentimes does not have the same passion for God that they do. But all of a sudden, the focus gets off of God and onto this other person. And they wind up getting married or unfortunately sometimes living together perhaps. But at any rate, everything that God was doing in their life just evaporates because all of a sudden, their priority went from God to this other person. And I'm telling you folks that now, if you're already married, then you just got to work with what you got, okay? <laughs> I'm not telling anybody, if your spouse isn't as on fire for God as you are, dump them. I've actually known groups like that that did that. I've known people that got divorced for that very reason. That is not godly. That is not biblical. You don't do that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, it says, if you're married, don't seek to be single. If you're single, don't seek to be married. Just seek God and let Him decide. But I can't tell you. It just drives me nuts to see how the devil comes in and rips people off because the desire for... And again, I understand it's normal. We're created that way. God created us to want to have a helpmeet, a companion. But the only thing worse than being single is being in, the, in a bad relationship. And a bad marriage. If I could just get out of my marriage. <laughs> if I could just find somebody to marry. Then my problems would be solved. Oh yeah? <laughs> you think so, huh? If I could get out of this lousy job. And so you find people quitting their job before they have another job. And then they have a new problem. No money, honey. If I could just find a better church with nicer people, you know a good alternative would be you start making the first effort to be nicer and see what happens. 
It's all a matter of perspective, folks. If I could just do all these things, if I could get out of Albuquerque, get out of my marriage, find somebody better to marry, get out of this lousy job, find a better church with nicer people, life would be wonderful. For the Jews, it all boiled down to if we could just get these stinking Romans out of here. But the real problem for all people of all times has always been and still is sin. That's the problem. And our own sin. That's our number one problem. John 1, 29. The next day John, the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And that's what Jesus came to do. If only the Jews of his day had recognized that. But I have to be honest, I'm thankful that they didn't. Because if they had embraced him for who he really was, then you and I wouldn't have gotten a chance to be a part of his kingdom. My wife has this expression. She says, I'm encouraged by the most negative things. And this is a negative thing that I'm very encouraged by, that because of their rejection of Christ, he became the Savior of the whole world. Now, does my heart break for them? Yes. But the promise of God's word is that Israel will be restored. And it's already happening as more and more reports of Jewish people embracing Jesus as their Messiah. Now, when we talk about a great falling away in the last days, the other side of that coin is there is an ever-increasing number of Jewish people receiving Jesus as their Messiah. And that's another indicator that we're in the last days because that's God's promise that at the end of the age of the Gentiles, which we're coming to an end now, would be the resurgence and the restoration of Israel. And boy, is it making the devil mad. And all the devil's people. And now, right in our own Congress, we have growing anti-Semitism. That's another sign that we're in the last days, folks. All over the world. After the Holocaust of World War II, the outcry throughout the world was what? Never again. Do you remember? The whole world said that. The whole world was so horrified by what happened in Nazi Germany and in Eastern Europe during World War II, documented six million Jews, probably a lot more. And good old um, Stalin, he, he probably killed more than Hitler did. But the whole world was saying, this is horrible, this can't ever happen again, never again. And yet here we are, 1945, 55, 65, 73 years later, it's happening again. And the Bible said that it would. And yet those who bless Israel will be blessed, right? And those who curse Israel will be cursed. Thankfully, right now at least, we have someone in office who has a desire to bless Israel. We've moved the first time since Israel became a nation, our nation has moved its embassy to Jerusalem, which is Israel's designated capital, but no other nation has been willing to recognize that. That is extremely significant. Do you know that? The real problem for all people of all times has been and always will be sin. The Israelites, the Jews of Jesus' day, didn't recognize it. They were looking for a military hero, 
And that wasn't Jesus, at least not the first time. He came the first time on a donkey as the Prince of Peace. And when he had come into Jerusalem, verse 10, all the city was moved saying, Who is this? And so people had come from all over that known world, Jews speaking different languages. Remember in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost? Well, they heard, everybody heard them speaking in their own language. You see, the Jews had been dispersed, the diaspora. The Jews had been dispersed all over the known world and grew up in various cultures speaking different languages. And so when they would come to Jerusalem for the feast, not everybody spoke the same language and not everybody knew who Jesus was. All the locals did. But you've got people from all over the Mediterranean, all over Asia Minor, coming down there for the feast. And they go, who is this? Wow! This guy's a rock star. So he came into Jerusalem, having descended the Mount of Olives, traveling west across the Kidron Valley. That's the valley that runs between the east side of Jerusalem, Old Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives. He comes down. He enters Jerusalem through the Golden Gate, located on the east side of the city. All the city was moved. Again, how many people? Approximately 240, 250,000 people gathered for Passover. But it just goes to show you, this whole scenario goes to show you, this was a big, exciting, energetic, emotional explosion taking place. This is the guy who raised Lazarus from the dead. But it just goes to show you how fickle people are. Again, when things are going well in someone's life, they praise God, they're excited, they're happy, but then problems come along, they get mad at God, they blame God, maybe they turn away from God. That's the real test of our faith, by the way. Being prosperous and plentiful and everything going great is not a test of your faith. The test comes when problems arise, and how do you deal with them? So five days later, they would be crying out what? Now they're crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Five days later, crucify him. Crucify him. Who is this? The people had been caught up in the fervor of the moment, but they didn't really know who Jesus was and what he came to do. And this is why it's very dangerous, folks although it's becoming increasingly popular to do so, it's very dangerous to rely upon emotional experiences and feelings. I mean, there are a lot of things that can give you a momentary sense of exhilaration, right? Drugs, alcohol. There are a lot of things that will make you feel good for a moment. But the after effects aren't so good, are they? And that can be true of emotional experiences when it comes to our faith. It's great to feel good. And I've had those moments during worship where I literally get kind of a tingling down the back of my neck. It's just like you can really sense the presence of the Holy Spirit. You ever had any of those times? It doesn't happen all the time. Just like you don't always tingle about your husband or your wife. Sometimes you tingle, and when you do, it's great. But, see, the problem is for a lot of people... When, when there's no more tingle, they don't want to mingle. <laughs> They're down the road. That's not commitment, is it? Love isn't a feeling, it's a commitment, is it not? Again, 
It's easy to love somebody when you're tingling. But when you're, what about when you're not tingling? Do you still love them? Are you still committed? Are you still there for them? And the same thing is true with Christ. John 8, 31, 32. Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth. So we don't get the truth by listening to other people, do we? We don't get the truth by watching our favorite TV preacher, necessarily, unless they're preaching the truth. Hopefully, a lot of them aren't. The truth shall make you free. If you abide in my word, you're my disciples indeed. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Warm, fuzzy feelings and emotional experiences do not make you free. In fact, sometimes they put you in bondage because I've known people through the years, believers, or people who identify as believers, and their whole relationship with God is based upon emotions and experience. And when there's no good emotions or experience, their relationship with God goes south. If your relationship with God is rooted and grounded in the truth of who He is, what He has done, what He is doing, what He's going to do, if you, Jesus said, if you hear these words of mine and put them into practice, you're like the man who built his house upon the rock. Verse 11, so the multitudes said, so the people from far away were saying, who is this guy? Wow! The multitudes, those that had been following Jesus around for the last three years, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Again, they were correct to a degree, but their knowledge of Jesus was incomplete. Notice how they referred to him as a prophet. And by the way, who is the one who specializes in partial truth? Satan. Satan loves to take a little kernel, a little nugget of truth, and build a huge lie around it. Have you noticed that? And you hear these people say, oh yeah, Jesus, oh yeah, he was a great prophet. He was a good man, good teacher, great philosopher, one of the many manifestations of the Christ consciousness. Boy, I put Jesus right up there with Buddha, Krishna, you know, Joseph Smith. No, 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 no. Jesus is more than that. We saw earlier he referred to himself as the Lord. Now, again, in earthly terms, there have been those, especially in European monarchies and royalty and so forth, referred to. They even have a house of lords over there, right? But they're just men. There's only one real Lord, right? The Lord God, the creator of heaven and earth. One God and three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And I would make this point as we move towards our conclusion this morning. Just like these people that we're reading about here on Palm Sunday, many people know just enough about Jesus to be inoculated. And what I mean by that, when you receive an inoculation, you're given a small amount of that which you're trying to avoid catching, right? whether it be the flu, the measles, pneumonia, the vaccination or an inoculation is actually just a little bit of the illness of the disease, right? The sickness. And what it does, it puts just enough into your system 
to trigger your immune system to fight back, and that's how you build up an immunity, right? Are we tracking here? Some people know just enough about Jesus to be inoculated. The emotional fervor of Palm Sunday was a big shot in the arm, if you will, for the residents of Jerusalem and the visiting pilgrims as well. Wow, what a way to start off Passover week. We call it the Passion Week now because the Passion of the Christ. Jesus' suffering and death on the cross. The Passion. What a way to trigger that great celebration than to have Jesus, this great prophet from Nazareth and son of David, he's going to come and throw out the Romans, boy. What a way to trigger that celebration. But ultimately, their preconceived ideas and misplaced expectations resulted in an immunity to the truth. You think we see that happening around us today? Absolutely. Because of the many unbiblical teachings flying around, it's creating preconceived ideas and misplaced expectations about God, about Jesus, and Many people, rather than truly being born again, regenerated, have actually been inoculated and have built up an immunity to the truth. And how do you recognize that? Well, when you speak the truth to them, instead of rejoicing and embracing it, they get mad. Hello? Hello? You think people would, wow, that's awesome. Man, give me some more truth. Oh, no. They get very angry, right? That's how you can tell when somebody's been inoculated and immunized against the truth. Luke 19, 41 through 44. So Luke gives us some information about what happens right after the triumphal entry, which J. Vernon McGee calls it the tragic entry, because they missed it. So now as he drew near, he saw the city and he wept. They're celebrating. They're rejoicing. Woo-ha! They've probably got falafel stands on the side of the road and everything else. He saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this, your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you. This is the Romans in 70 A.D., Surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children with you to the ground. 70 A.D., Titus brought his Roman legions into Jerusalem and he destroyed the city, destroyed the temple and killed everybody they could get their hands on. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another. There's still these giant stones down at the base of the west wall, the western wall where the Wailing Wall is, down where the southern wall is. They've had ongoing excavations. We're seeing more and more of it. You can still these huge, gigantic stones at the Romans as they were destroying the temple and tossing the stones over the side. Because you did not know the time of your visitation. You see, this date, Palm Sunday, is the one and only time that Jesus very openly and publicly presented himself to the nation of Israel as the Messiah. At other times, he would tell them, don't tell anybody. 
He told his disciples when they had that revelation, you are the Messiah, the Son of God. He says, but don't tell anybody. Keep it on the down low. On this day, he presented himself. He said, this is the time of your visitation, and you missed it. He wept. He wasn't glad about it. The Bible says God takes no delight in the destruction of the wicked. Jesus was sad. He was brokenhearted. And you know what, folks? I know that it's possible at any point in time for any person to come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I also believe that in this life every human being has a time of visitation. A time when God is making every effort to reach you, to touch your heart. You could call it a season for salvation. Genesis 3.3, when God was getting ready to destroy the world with a great flood, he put up with a lot. Then he finally commissioned Noah and his sons to build the ark. But he says, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he is also flesh. We see that, that evidenced in the history of Israel and how God tried and tried to reach them. And he sent his prophets and they killed the prophets and on and on it went. And finally God said, fine, if you don't want to hear me, then I'm not going to talk to you anymore. And they call that period between the book of Malachi and the book of Matthew about a 500-year period, the silent period, when God wasn't speaking to his people at all until Jesus came on the scene. And you know what? It would seem, if someone continues to resist and resist and resist the Holy Spirit, I'm not interested, I don't want to know God, I don't want to hear it, His Spirit will not always strive with man. Isaiah 55, 6. Now this isn't just some cheap trick to try to get somebody to pray a sinner's prayer. This is Scripture. Have you ever wondered why somebody... They just seem, the longer time goes on, you try to tell them about Jesus, you try to win them over, you try to lead them to Christ, and they just seem to get farther and farther away. That's what happens. Isaiah 55, 6, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. You did not know the time of your visitation. 2 Corinthians 6, 2, for he saith, I have heard thee in a time accepted, and in the day of salvation have I succored thee, nurtured thee, nourished thee, encouraged you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. See, a lot of people think, well, yeah, maybe. Maybe tomorrow, maybe next week, maybe next year. Just not ready yet. But I'll probably, I'll probably you know, accept Christ one of these days. I'll probably embrace God one of these days. Well, you don't know how many days you have left, for one thing. And you also don't realize that as you continue to harden your heart and deafen your ears, there could come a time where it's no longer possible. Not because God isn't willing, but because you have closed the door so tight and locked it up to the point where it can't be opened. It's absolutely imperative when you when your time of visitation comes, and for many of you, you've already, you're already past that point. You have invited Christ into your life. But there could be somebody here today or somebody watching on the internet or somebody who'll be watching this when it goes on to the television at some point. 
that has not yet opened that door. Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him. Some people think that God will just beat your door down and force his way in. He won't do that. You have to be a willing participant. And again, John 14.6, we all know this one. Jesus said to him, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So when we talk about the time of visitation, the day of salvation, it has everything to do with opening the door and allowing Jesus to triumphantly enter into your heart. It was a tragic entry because ultimately they didn't recognize him for who he really is. And they, five days later, they totally rejected him. But every individual has the opportunity to let Jesus triumphantly enter into your heart, into your life. And I encourage you, if you have not done that here today, that you would do it before you leave here today. We're going to pray in a moment. Then I'm going to have the prayer team come up. And you're invited to come up for prayer. If there's even one person here today, that when you're honest with yourself, and you know in your heart of hearts, you've never really been born again. You've never really acknowledged Jesus for who he really is. And you've never given your life over to him and received the forgiveness of your sins that can only come through his shed blood on the cross. Do it today. Don't wait any longer. This could be your time of visitation. You don't want to let it go by. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, into this world 2,000 years ago. And Lord, we thank you that we have the opportunity now to recognize your time of visitation for each one of us. Many of us have already done that, Lord. Perhaps most of us in this room. We've already invited Christ into our lives to be our Lord and Savior. Lord, for those who have done that, I pray that you strengthen us. Help us to continue on the straight and narrow path that leads to eternal life. Lord, not to be caught up in emotional fervor and experiences that can be deceptive and misleading. Help us to have our lives firmly planted upon the rock of the truth of your word and of your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, for anyone who doesn't know you, that this could be their time to open that door and invite Christ into their lives. Lord, we pray also for anyone who needs healing, encouragement, guidance, provision. Lord, you are our resource. You have everything we need. And I pray that no one would leave here today discouraged or disappointed, but every single person would take advantage of that which is available today through prayer, through the seeking of your face. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.